Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 50. Last week, I covered the history of the city of Hebron, up through the end of the 12th century AD. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. And before I begin today's episode, a programming note. Recently, one of the more frequent questions I get concerning the podcast goes something like, Why are you covering these cities through the modern era? instead of just the point in time as they are found in Genesis? Well, the answer involves several parts. First is for continuity. It's much easier to follow the narrative one city at a time, instead of skipping around for the next several thousand years. And second, it's a bit of pre-planning on my part. If you think of the Christian religion geographically, the B.C. portion of the Bible is exclusively in the Middle East. Well, except for a few tangential excursions to North Africa, southwestern Europe, and not as far west in Asia. But post-BC, it begins to shift with a building acceleration towards Europe. Well, with the general exception of the Crusades. So, after Christ, I really won't be returning to this region. Couple that with the desire to cover them at some point and now becomes probably the best point in the podcast to get it in. And that's a somewhat long-winded explanation to the recurrent question. And I recognize that this structure slows the progression down a bit. But please remember, the history outside of the Bible covered in Genesis represents thousands of years. This part has to go relatively slowly. Now for today's episode. Last week, I covered the history of Hebron, like I said, through about the end of the 12th century AD. At that time, Hebron was under the control of the European Crusaders. This week, I'm starting where the Muslims regained control, and I take it up through the modern era. So let's get started. Assisted by Jewish residents, as well as expatriate Jews, a Kurdish Muslim known as Saladin retook Hebron from the Crusaders in 1187. Sometimes you see this group referred to as the Mamluks. Now to me, when viewed through our modern lens, the fact that this Kurdish Muslim had Jewish support is surprising. But the precept that the enemy of my enemy is my friend was just as true then as it is today. And the Crusaders were repressive, well, extremely repressive towards the Jews. For example, their synagogues were converted to Christian churches. And I recognize that the phrase is redundant, but needed for emphasis. Their movements were restricted, their economy was suppressed. But the assistance of the Jews to the Muslims was not without certain guarantees. Saladin offered them a letter of security, which allowed the Jewish population to return to the city and construct a synagogue. While he held control, Saladin also rebuilt many of the city's structures damaged by the Crusaders. Now, the Mamluks were an interesting group. They were, as best as we can phrase in our modern vernacular, an army made of slaves. Their masters were often quite distant and tended to be Arabic. Why there was little threat of a coup, I don't quite understand. But after taking control of Hebron, the Islamic Mamluks reconverted the church at the tomb of the patriarchs into a mosque. As it would turn out, they were less accepting of other religions than were their pre-Crusader Islamic regimes. And so much for the spirit of that security letter. 
For example, a decree in 1266 forbade Jews and Christians from entering the Tomb of the Patriarchs, allowing them only to ascend to the fifth step of the Eastern Wall. A time later, the rights of the Jews and Christians were extended and they could make their way all the way up to the seventh step. Now that seems a bit repressive too. The Crusaders didn't go down without a fight though, and the city switched hands many times over the course of the next several decades. More specifically, none other than Richard the Lionheart retook the city from Saladin. And true to their European roots, there was infighting within the Crusaders. Richard of Cornwall, not to be confused with Richard Cromwell, attempted to settle the feud between the Hospitallers and the Knights Templars. Why was this important? Well, the Crusaders had inked a treaty with the Egyptian Sultan, Asela Ayub, which helped to ensure regional stability. And Cornwall did settle the dispute, but the peace only lasted for a short while after he left to return to England. You see, the Knights Templar in 1241 raided Hebron, which had shortly before reverted back to Muslim hands. The raid violated the agreement Cornwall had negotiated. A few years later, well, three years later, the Mongol Kersmians raided, subsequently destroyed, and then occupied Hebron. For unknown reasons, they left the sanctuary of Abraham undamaged. Their occupation will last for 16 years. Then, in 1260, the Mamluk Sultan Berbers defeated the Mongol army and drove them out of the region. With their victory, the Mamluks reverted the city name back to Al-Khali and the city saw a small influx of Kurds. The Muslims then went on a building spree, and minarets were built onto what had been a Christian sanctuary, but now it was a mosque, again. In fact, archaeologists consider Hebron's old city to be one of the world's best-preserved medieval cities accentuated by several surviving Mamluk and Ottoman period structures. As the next few years passed, the Muslims began to repress the resident Jews and Christians. It was in 1266 that they issued an edict forbidding Christians and Jews from entering the sanctuary of Abraham. But this was to a very large degree symbolic, as it was not strictly enforced for almost 100 years. But even after its enforcement, there were creative ways around the ban. An Italian writer, known as Meshlam of Volterra, in 1481, noted that the Jewish women of Hebron would cover themselves with a veil so that they appeared Muslim, in order to enter the cave of the patriarchs. This may be one of the reasons that in 1490, Muslims too were forbidden from entering the caves. One final topic from the Muslim era, and it comes from the visiting Italian rabbi, Abdiya ben Abraham Bartenera, who in 1490 wrote, I was in the cave of Machpelah, over which the mosque had been built, and the Arabs hold the place in high honor. All of the kings of the Arabs come here to repeat their prayers, but neither a Jew nor an Arab may enter the cave itself. Where the real graves of the patriarchs are, the Arabs remain above, and let down burning torches into it through a window, for they keep a light always burning there. Bread and lentil, or some other kind of peas, is distributed by the Muslims to the poor every day without distinction of faith, and this is done in honor of Abraham." End quote. Then, in 1517, the Ottoman Tux under Selim I took over the city. 
and the rule of the Ottomans was not peaceful as they plundered Jewish homes and even stooped as low as to rape and murder non-Muslims. Similar to Beersheba, those Jews lucky enough to survive fled, this time to Beirut. Think of this as another Jewish exile on a much smaller scale, lasting 16 years. Then, the immigration reversed, and in 1540, Jewish exiles from Spain arrived and built a new synagogue. Why were the Jews fleeing Spain? The Inquisition. That, too, will be covered later. The influx of Jews is important, not because of the buildings, but as the seemingly reversal of the immigration situation. A curious story about the synagogue. According to local lore, at one service many years ago, hundreds of years ago, when the required minimum headcount was short one person for prayer, Abraham himself appeared to complete the Quorum. The immigration to Hebron seemed to continue, and despite that the area remained poor and the Black Death swept the city in 1619, the Hebron Jewish community grew in population. For reference, think back to the second episode of the podcast over a year ago. This was the same period when the Black Death was sweeping Europe, and wiped out over a quarter of London's population, and also the same time that the first edition of the King James Bible was being translated. The Ottoman period, which was from 1517 to 1917, saw groups of Jews from other parts of Israel and places further afield relocate to the city. Also, in the same time period, there was a significant migration of Bedouin tribal groups from the Arabian Peninsula into Palestine, including Hebron and the surrounding area. Their descendants would slowly become the clear majority of Hebron. The effects of this immigration still echo today. More on that at the end of the episode. Of course, the Ottoman period was not without its drama. As all was not always peaceful, in 1775, some of the Jewish population were falsely accused of murdering the son of a local sheik and disposing of his body in the local landfill. Interestingly, the penalty imposed on the Jewish community was an onerous fine. The economy of the area was already poor, and the Jewish community was particularly repressed and could only be sustained through international charity. The fine had the potential to break the backs of the Jews, but it did not work. They remained. And, similar to the Malmucks, the Ottomans set about tending to much of the dilapidated buildings. During their rule, the Tomb of the Patriarchs was restored. The degree of restoration was remarked upon by Ali Bey al-Kabur in 1807. He wrote, quoting, All the sepultures of the Patriarchs are covered with rich carpets of green silk, magnificently embroidered with gold, those of the wives are red, embroidered in like manner. The sultans of Constantinople furnish these carpets, which are renewed from time to time. End quote. Ali Bey counted nine, one over the other, upon the sepulture of Abraham. Ali Bey was a Mamluk leader from Egypt. In 1834, Hebron suffered through an uprising of Arab peasants after Ibrahim Pasha of Egypt forcibly attempted to conscript troops from their population. Pasha, of course, was not pleased with revolt against his will, and sent his own troops to Hebron to quash the uprising. Of course, the untrained locals were no match for a professional army, and the town was overthrown in short order. 
It's estimated that 500 of Hebron's Muslims were killed, and another 750 were forced into service. And if that were not enough, another 120 youths were abducted and put at the disposal of Egyptian army officers. I'll let you fill in that blank. Before the battle, most of the Muslim population fled the city, headed for the wilderness. They were not alone, as most of the Jewish population ran for Jerusalem. And those Jews that did not leave, at least five were killed in the battle. Ibrahim Pasha controlled the city for seven years, until rule was resumed by the locals in 1841. And, the new rulers continued the long-established tradition of suppressing religious minorities, this time in the form of extraordinary taxes. These tactics had the desired result most of the Jewish population left for Jerusalem, again. While the sacred sites of the city remained staunchly under the control of the vastly majority Islamic population, and despite the systematized religious oppression and open hostility, both the Jews and the Christians seemed to be well integrated into the town's economic markets. But, or maybe as a result of the constant religious infighting, the economy declined. And like even the most amateur economist knows, declining production leads to declining tax revenues. As a natural consequence, the ruling Ottomans began to care less and less about what happened in Hebron. Unintended consequences are always present, and in this case, the situation led to a more autonomous city. Go figure. This autonomy lasted until World War I. During World War I, but prior to the British occupation, the Jewish community suffered greatly under the Marshall Ottoman administration. Young men were drafted into the Turkish army, and the international donations that had supported the Jewish community ceased. As would be expected, hunger and disease once again reared their heads. Then, in 1917, the British wrested control from the Turks. Up until then, the Jewish population had dwindled to just north of 400 people, but it began a slow recovery. By 1929, they had added another 300 souls to the Jewish community. Then, in 1929, there was a large-scale massacre reportedly perpetrated by the Arab population, seemingly designed at either driving the Jews off or killing them all outright. Probably a mixture of both. When it was over, 67 Jews were dead, another 60 wounded, the houses were destroyed, the synagogues demolished, and even the Torah scrolls were burned. And it was successful, as the surviving Jews fled to Jerusalem, again. Not all the Arabs were guilty, though. Their version of Oscar Schindler, an Arab known as Hajj Issa el-Kordi, hid 33 Jews in his basement and protected them from the rioting mob. Another 402 survived under similar circumstances proving you should be careful when painting with a broad brush. It would be two years before any of the exiled Jews would return to Hebron, a number that was somewhere between 31 and 35 families. This, though, was not to last, as in 1936 the controlling British became concerned about another impending massacre, and therefore forcibly evacuated the Jewish community, again. But one Jew remained. This sole exception was the 8th generation Hebronite, Yaakov ben Shalom Ezra, 
who owned a dairy processing business. He found protection with his non-Jewish friends. To be clear, his Islamic friends provided protection. Then, 11 years later, in 1947, he and his family closed its business and left for good. Why? He assumed that when the UN formally established the Israeli state and divided the area, Hebron would be outside of Jewish-controlled territory. As I've mentioned before, the modern state of Israel was created in 1948 and immediately invaded by their Arab neighbors. Not very neighborly, though. In this invasion, Hebron was taken over by Egypt. But between May and October of the same year, Egypt and Jordan fought each other for control of the area surrounding the city. Almost comically, but not really, considering it involved real people, both countries appointed their own military governors in the town, each attempting to gain formal recognition from the city's officials. To Jordan's dismay, the Egyptians managed to persuade the pro-Jordanian mayor to support them. But then the Egyptian leader attempted to impose new taxes, and quite naturally, they were suddenly persona non grata. Then, late in the year, as winter approached, much of the Egyptian army was cut off from their supply lines. All of a sudden, at least to the Egyptians, control of the area seemed less appealing. The issue was finally resolved with the Arab-Israeli armistice when control of the city was ceded to Jordan. The Jordanians controlled the area for 29 years, at which time no Jews were allowed to live in Hebron. But their restrictions went even further. Despite the language of the armistice saying otherwise, Jews were not allowed to visit the Jewish holy sites in the city. But they weren't quite done yet. The ruling authorities commenced on a systematic campaign to remove all Jewish remnants, including the desecration of the Jewish cemetery, and even building an animal pen on the ruins of the Abraham and Menah synagogue. Now, was that really necessary? Israel regained control of Hebron in 1967 during the Six Days War. After this, the Israeli government slowly began to repatriate Jewish settlers. Also, following the war, the tombs of the patriarchs were opened to all worshippers for the first time since the 1267 prohibition against non-Muslims, essentially 700 years before. Both Muslim and Jewish services began to be held in the cave, and the upper sanctuary was divided between the religious communities. Geographically speaking, after the Six-Day War in June 1967, Israel also controlled the West Bank. I know I've mentioned this phrase quite a few times, and it is often used in the popular news media, but for clarity, the phrase refers to the western side of the Jordan River. In order to govern the area, Israel instituted martial law, which sounds really harsh. In reality, martial law simply means that the military ran the area. But to be clear, it's not a democracy. Fast forward a few decades, and the settlement situation has seemingly reversed. Now the Palestinians are claiming repression, and are actually forbidden from living and even entering certain areas. And this policy is leading to a decline in the Palestinian population. Then again, the two populations are completely segregated, as not even the Israeli army can enter certain areas without a Palestinian escort. Since that time, and quite literally up through today, the town of Hebron and the surrounding West Bank have been an area of geographic contention. 
In short, the resident Palestinians resent that their homes are now in Israeli territory. The Israelis are thankful that they control the territory that was part of their ancient kingdom, but also appreciate an added geographic buffer between themselves and their enemies. It's a messy situation. And all of this is probably not sustainable. But that's my opinion in the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll cover the history of the Hittites. You don't want to miss it. This week, go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. I've made this request several times, and I know that more of you will take me up on it. Like I've said before, doing so helps others who don't listen to the podcast yet find it. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at ChristianHistoryPodcast.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at ChristianHistoryPodcast.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.